Hi, I'm Carrie Adams and you're listening to Carrie's Corner. Here we talk to the movers and shakers, the drinkers, the dreamers, the people who make it happen in the liquor industry around the world. So, let's get sipping. Today on Carrie's Corner on Biz News, I am chatting to Dan Nickel. Now, I don't know how many, I'm sure everybody knows Dan Nickel, but I did pop online to get some of the lowdown on Dan to make sure that what I had in my head was correct about who he is and where he comes from. And Wikipedia has him down as an English-American screenwriter who was born in 1925, which we know that, but he's also famous for having written the script for a movie called The Dumplings. Dan, welcome to Carrie's Corner. How are you? <laughs> I've received many introductions around the world on various stages and various interviews. I've never been accused of being almost 100, being English-American and having written a screenplay. <laughs> Thank you, I laughed so much when I saw that just because you, he really does, guys. Dan has the most wicked, unbelievably fun sense of humor. And I thought... I finally got you on something where you're older than me. 1925, it's impressive. It is indeed. Well, look, I'm being, I'm being interviewed by my very favorite dumpling, so I won't take <laughs> So, Dan, this stands to be an absolutely hugely fun interview, and I look forward to it immensely. For those of you who don't know who Dan Nickel is, he's just a complete and utter asset to South Africa. He was born in Belfast, really, really, not in 1925. We won't give that away. But he was brought up in Zimbabwe, probably single-handedly responsible for the collapse of the Zimbabwean economy, I'm not sure, but then came to South Africa and set to work as a sports presenter. I think sports presenter, uh, Dan, just correct me if I'm going awry anywhere here, but he does, he's been a sports commentator for a long time in South Africa. He's got his own show, but the thing, the little knitting that holds us together is that we're both in love with wine, and we love to do it in a fun, happy, unconventional way, really, and bring wine to everybody and enjoy it as much as we do. Dan, fill in the gaps. You're, a, you're remarkably accurate there, which is quite surprising. Uh, <laughs> it, uh, yeah, I, I was born in Belfast. I grew up in Zimbabwe. My mother is South African, and I went down to the University of Cape Town. It was while there that I started on radio, uh, from University Radio through to Cape Talk, and then on to iafrica.com and while working as their sports editor discovered that our lifestyle editor had too many invitations to take up for things like restaurant openings and wine launches and so, <laughs> you stuck your hand up well as, as casually as i possibly could for a 20 something bachelor with not much money in his pocket said well you know, I, I suppose i could possibly make time to help you out with one or two of those <laughs> and i still remember going to my very first one i got sent out to what was then stellenzach now part of the ernie else empire and guy weber was the man in charge and i invited <laughs> to a vertical tasting and i was very excited because i didn't realize they had any tall buildings in stellenbosch and i thought <laughs> and that you had to do one standing up we're, we're going to be up on the top floor looking out and the view is going to be terrific i had no idea <laughs> what vertical tasting actually was and i spent three hours not understanding a word but being absolutely mesmerized by the conversations and the passion and the discussion and i spent the next uh, next few years with africa.com going to every event i could and unusually for somebody who talks for a living just sitting and listening and sitting next to people like peter finlayson at a lunch and having him tell mm. me about his love of pinot noir and how his career had played out and going out to dornier and uh, meeting their team and their winemakers and, and just 
learning, which uh, I think we live in an age where listening to other people is not really a collective asset, but it yes. uh, stood me in great stead. And it uh, allowed me in 2016, uh, a year after the Dan Nichols show had started on television to kick off Dan Really Likes Wine. And for now, just over four years, we've been talking about wine, celebrating wine and enjoying what is just such a wonderful South African asset. I know. And you've, as I said, you've been such an asset to it and we love you. So thank you for all your Dan really likes. Wine has become quite famous in South Africa. Today you're in Carrie's Corner on Biz News and we're talking to you because I'm trying to understand the role that you played. I think that you sort of single-handedly lifted the spirits at the Wine Futures, International Wine Futures Conference, which is recently held in no specific place because it was online this year. Tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, I spotted online a couple of months back uh, Mike Radcliffe, uh, who I think now owns Stellenbosch, uh, mentioned <laughs> that he was going to be speaking at this Wine Futures Conference. And I'm always looking at spaces where, as Dan really likes wine, we can tell news stories, interact with different people, broaden the scope of both my show, but also the access that people who watch it have to the wine world at large. And this looked like a really interesting event. I researched it a bit, discovered it had been held twice before, once in Rioja in 2009, and then again 2011 in Hong Kong. And it had a great reputation. Robert Parker had headlined one of the events that had gone particularly well. And I thought, well, this will make an interesting piece to interview some of the people involved. And we got uh, Pancho Campo, who's the owner of the event, a former Spanish tennis player who now runs events. Yes. And David Fuhrer. He's really, he's really hot as well. I, I looked at the pictures and I thought, God, why didn't I go to that conference? <laughs> far too old for you, Carrie. Far too old. For you. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> uh, but to get, together with David Fuhrer, who is a well-established personality in the American wine trade, they arranged this almighty virtual conference. And I had them on down, really likes wine. We chatted about it. It was really exciting. We had some conversations thereafter. And before I knew it, uh, Dan really likes wine was providing the entertainment for some of our past episodes, some of our celebrity interviews. Uh, I was appointed entertainment director, as I discovered on the website. And I was uh, <laughs> able to chat before each day with both David and Pancho about the event, kind of open it up and, and preview it uh, and look ahead to what were four absolutely fascinating jam-packed days of assessment of wine future, but also wine present, wine past, and try and get some sort of sense of where in this utterly daft world of ours we might be heading in the next few years. It's fantastic, and just sort of really heads up to you for getting that little slot, because it is quite a power-packed heavyweight conference. I didn't realize it. It wasn't particularly well marketed this year, so I didn't actually buy a ticket, but for 65 euros, you could buy yourself a little space in this Wine Futures Conference, which, as Dan says, was all online. There were upwards of sort of 25 or 30 guest speakers, all very, very um, heavyweight guest speakers. And I spoke to the same Mike Ratcliffe when I knew that I was going to be interviewing you. And he reckoned that of all the conferences that he's been to in the world, this one provided probably the most food for thought, quite a lot of hard-hitting subjects and things. And if we unpack some of the topics that were covered, they really did sort of go right across the spectrum of everything. Did you listen? Did you sort of weigh in on every single guest speaker's presentation? I got the first two days, the majority of the third. I had children on a half-term holiday, so I was balancing my wine education with 
trying to stop a four-year-old from colouring in <laughs> curtains. So uh, I all of it, but I, I did get the majority. And uh, I think just as an overview before looking at some of the specific spaces, what I really enjoyed about this conference was the diversity. And it's a word that we employ and I think has, has lost some of its, uh, its mm. impact from overuse. But diversity, not just in terms of uh, gender or ethnicity, but the diversity of topic and the diversity of background of the people speaking. So it wasn't mm. just here are a couple of winemakers, a few wine exporters, somebody who runs a wine show and somebody involved in a trade organization. It mm. was people involved in the coffee industry, people who ran data businesses, people who were involved in the broader transport trade. So people from all sorts of spaces who made you think beyond just what you might normally have expected to be thinking about at a wine show. And I think that was coupled with an event that was unafraid to address spaces that we often don't like talking about. They looked at mm. issues of gender inequality in the wine industry. They looked at embargoes. They looked at how we're going to get trade shows up and running and at a time when people being together in large groups just isn't feasible. There was It was difficult questions. They weren't all answered, but it made people think. And I think Mike is right there. There was a, a lot of people afterwards thinking through what they'd listened to, who they'd spoken to, and what that was saying to whoever they were in their particular corner of the wine world. Mm. The one thing that I did want to speak to you about, because it was something that I touched on when I was chatting to Michael Fridjon in another interview that I did, do you think that the days of wine expos, like the massive Vine Expo, Hong Kong Vine Expo, um, what's the one in Germany, ProVine, do you think those days are finished? Do you think we're ever going to have big wine expos again in the world? I think there will still be a push for that sort of event because – it's a, it's a huge money spinner for the areas uh, involved. And I, I think there's still an enormous amount of value to personal contact, personal interaction, the spending the day visiting different stands and then having dinner or a couple of glasses with somebody from the industry who you only see once a year at Provine, for instance. or And getting the opportunity to taste everything. I mean, that is where people like you and I apply our trade and we're learning about what last year's vintage of Chardonnay from Napa tasted like, for example. We would never otherwise get to taste those things. So it's actually hugely important for people like Dan and Carrie. It is. The flip side to that, though, is that people, and it came up several times over, in fact, there was a particular discussion that uh, the head of Provine was, was part of it, talking about what they can and can't do. This entire uh, wine future 2021 had a, a, a not a zero, but a, a negligible carbon footprint compared to what it would normally have. It was held physically. People were paying their 125 euros to log on or 65 euros if they used the Dan Really Likes Wine special. And they were able to, <laughs> to listen to this incredible group of people from their own home. They didn't have to pay for a flight. They didn't have to pay for a hotel. Yeah. It was an enormously cost-effective and environmentally friendly way of hosting this kind of event. And a number of people spoke about from the the marketing side of things, the engagement side of things, how they had started sending out miniature bottles to particular clients. And okay. because they weren't spending money on setting up a huge wine fair, they were able to speak differently, to address people in a, a yeah. different manner. 
And so there, I think there's going to be some sort of middle of the road. They were talking about it at Provine. They could only have you two or three people at a particular stand at any one time. And suddenly that doesn't make it worthwhile for people to go and invest the money they need to. Um, so I think we're still certainly a long way off getting back to the way it used to be. I think we'll still see elements of that. But I also think we'll see a lot of people try and embrace this more virtual approach. What do you think the, the turnout was? Do you know how many people bought tickets to this? Wine Futures Conference? Uh, I think it was, uh, I think at its peak there were about 500 odd people who were on live and other people who'd bought tickets and were then watching thereafter based on their time zone, maybe not able to join if they were uh, mm. sitting in New Zealand, Sydney or, or similar. Uh, so it was pretty solid. For me, it was uh, almost the, the quality rather than the quantity. You saw people popping up, say somebody like Robert Joseph, who did speak with Mike Radcliffe on uh, future proofing the wine business and it was a very interesting conversation but he was there for most of the week dropping in comments watching engaging and that was true of a lot of fairly well-known people in the wine space mm. i did see i looked at the i looked at the lineup of of speakers and i mean they they were absolutely amazing this the whole conference of course was sponsored by wines of portugal um which i think is fantastic i don't know if you've had the privilege to taste or catch up on any of the wines that we're getting in South Africa from Portugal, but they're making some super smart wines at the moment, and they're not wildly expensive. So I, I remember, and this is a mark of shame, if I go back now about uh, 12 years, the uh, holiday to Europe where I met my now wife. We were all uh, as a group together in the Algarve, and we went shopping on the first morning. We'd rented a villa together. And there was Portuguese wine and there was French wine and not really knowing Portuguese wine and wanting to look terribly important. Uh, I insisted on <laughs> you chose the Chateau Latour. 20 euro bottles of French wine instead of the two euro bottles of Portuguese wine. Mm. And then the French wine ran out and I grudgingly had a glass of the Portuguese and it was twice as good as the French wine. Um, it's delicious. It is mm. I'm a great admirer as well. So... On the program, so it was sponsored, the, the title sponsor was was um, Wines of Portugal and then many other sponsors besides. But in terms of the program, I wanted to chat to you about the exhibitions which you've we've addressed already. There were, as you say, some rather touchy subjects, reversing discrimination. It was one that a lot of people... Uh, either there's not really a middle ground often here. They either plow in uh, with great gusto, or they'd rather actually just not talk about it and sidestep it. And it's a it's a difficult one. And uh, broadly speaking, around the world, the wine industry is still older white men, and that speaks to, to the nature of it. And so for me, it was a, a fascinating looking at the perspectives of the guests who came from different parts of the world. Uh, uh, Selena, for instance, who runs Michael Johnson's uh, Magic yes. Johnson's, but also has a great South African interest in wine. In fact, she really discovered wine at the Soweto Wine Festival on a visit to South Africa. Oh, really? Uh, and looking at wine as a tool for empowerment and kind of the, the general crux of the conversation was there is enough to go around bringing other people to the table doesn't mean that the people already there have to disappear uh, the wine industry can accommodate more people 
And mm. so it, it's a route towards diversifying not just the ownership of the wine, but the consumption of wine. And people do culturally identify with other people in whom they recognize something similar. And if you're able to construct a wine world that is no longer seen as elitist and white and male, and I, that's a huge generalization, certainly. But yeah. There are a lot of people who, for one reason or another, feel alienated or don't feel included in the broader wine space, and they drink something else as a result. And part of that is a sense of cultural alienation. So if you've got more people who look like you, think like you, feel like you, who are in a space you've got more chance of then broadening that base and that's something that's so important the amount of wine we're going to have mm. in south africa both uh, uh karina host and siobhan thompson gave some fairly stark statistics on where we stand as south african where our wine industry is and it's not a terribly uplifting space so what can we do <laughs> to get more people enjoying wine drinking wine celebrating wine and a big part of that is ensuring that we have a, a more diversified wine audience and that stems in part from having a more diversified wine ownership and wine management very very well put and i hope that most people um who are listening to us can apply that to most things in the economy that we face at the moment because we really are battling we're sort of drowning we're treading water and our heads are sort of going under it doesn't sound good at the moment we're about to harvest another how many millions of liters of wine in the cape we haven't sold or even bottled half of what we harvested last year it's a problem what were the insights from around the world on the effects of COVID on the wine industry? <laughs> oh, where, do, where do we start? Uh, I think I need yeah. to pour myself a large glass of wine. Before. I think we're all very bored with it by now, but it's a reality that we have to face. You know, until somebody has the what's it to stand up and say, guys, we've actually made a mistake here. We need to go back to work. <laughs> yeah, I, I think most of the response that i could give you people will know anyway it's all common sense we've sold less wine we struggled when we had our local ban we battled when we had our five-week stretch where we couldn't even export wine so south africa uh, probably the, the most uplifting part of the whole tale was that there is huge global sympathy from the wine community for south africa and what we've been through and also mm. look at some of the numbers that have come out of, of the UK in particular, where despite having that five-week window and the ensuing challenges of getting wine back out to market in the UK, we managed to increase the value of the wine that we sold to the UK. So there were a few glimmers of hope. You know, we're not going to solve this overnight. There are still huge challenges. We still have our own domestic restrictions. But what I loved about this conference was that you had the head of wines of New Zealand and you had the head of wines of Chile and you had key people speaking from Napa and from Rioja and communities and, and wine producing areas that are technically they're in competition with each other. They're in competition with us. And yet there was absolutely no reluctance to try and share best practice, to encourage, to try and get people to work together to try and lift the mm. entire wine industry. And, and that was really uplifting. Uh, the in terms of uh, things that have changed we've already mentioned the uh, the expos uh, being uh, you know, pretty much completely stopped and so there was mm. a lot of talk i mentioned earlier about people sending out bottled samples doing uh, the zoom tasting uh, so that was a, a big part of how people have tried to change and adapt and still engage with customers there were a couple of people who spoke about not customers but audience and they're telling a story yes. through their wine and through their brand and if i've got a, a television show or a radio show or a internationally award-winning wine-based podcast on biz news how am 
am I, uh, how am I engaging with that audience and making sure that they want to listen to me? Exactly the same with wine. It's, uh, there is so much good wine in the world that I now need a story behind it. I now need, and particularly with our more millennial audience, and this was referenced by a couple of people, uh, is it made ethically? Is it made responsibly? Is it made organically? Mm. Story behind the wine. For a long time, it's been more than just about making the wine, but never more so, I think, than it is now. And then how we get that wine to market. And then probably the other piece, which is, is so crucial, and it's one that I think I think terrifies most of us uh, who don't sit in a, a small cupboard at Dimension Data for a living, and that is mm. we understand, use, employ data. And, and one of the big pieces to come out was that the difference between sort of wide-ranging statistical data, a 42-year-old Indian man living in Durban is likely to buy X, and instead try and integrate with smaller samples of behavioral data, uh, try and get a better understanding at a more micro level, or who is Carrie and what does she drink? Now, that's a bad example because the answer is everything, but it's, uh, <laughs> it's trying to understand. Anything that Dan has left, all the dregs that Dan's exactly. left, I drink. But yeah, you need to, you, you, to try and understand that audience and speak to them because we are used to being spoken to at a far more individual level now. You know, Facebook knows what we've had for breakfast and when we're brushing our teeth and it's all very mm. million. But that's the nature of it. So how as a wine industry do we ensure that we are working out exactly who wants to drink our type of wine at our type of price with an engagement in our type of story and know that we hit them and we're able to engage with them and we're able to create that relationship between no longer customer and brand, but audience and almost storytelling. Mm. And especially, you know, you, you're not only playing to that one millennial market whilst they're hugely important. And then we've got to sort of try and think about how we refinesse it all and massage it all for the generation Z and, and on we go. There's also a generation like you and me who, who still do love that touchy feely. And I don't know about you. You've probably overcome it because you have so much more experience at it, but, I personally suffer from ghastly Zoom anxiety. I mean, I really, really do hate going on these Zoom meetings. I'm sitting in the studio this morning and I'm ably assisted and crutched and perched up and in a wheelchair with Callum Kennedy because I simply will not do these things on my own. I I have this terrible fear of you slipping off the edge of the screen and never to be retrieved and and you sit in meetings and it's, uh, uh, mm -mm, stop, start. You can't really always hear somebody you can't really engage at the same level in this current digital world as I am used to engaging or you were used to engaging from my desk at Norman Goodfellows, so to speak. It's just not the same. So I think that your point that you alluded to, the story bit, is very, very important. And that's why I wanted Carrie's Corner on Biz News because I, I can remember being small and going to the library and there was a reading corner and you could go and join that reading corner. And there was always a pretty lady who volunteered her services to look after ghastly children just like me. And we could sit in the corner and listen to stories. And I want my corner to be all those stories about exactly that, because I think that is what is probably going to send a success story of our wine industry out to the people who just don't know about it because they've been brought up in a digital world. I, I think so, and I think it's a, it's a very valid point. I, I also think, though, that as much as you know, we'd love to be back 
having a, a dinner for 30 people, the wine tasting, a couple of wine, mm. or engaging in the kind of spaces which we hark back to with fond nostalgia. The flip side of that is, uh, so this week is a good example. I started last year during lockdown uh, together with Greg Sherwood, the South African master of wine in London, who is probably the worst dressed man in the UK. But, <laughs> but he's uh, great. He does support us hugely. Does, and, uh, and nobody writes a tasting note quite like Greg Sherwood. No, and, uh, I know. There was one the other day on Twitter. It was just too bad to 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 ever try and retweet. You just couldn't. <laughs> but uh, Greg, myself, and Joe Waring and the team from Wines of South Africa set up the South African Wine Tribe, which now runs every two or three months. Uh, Greg puts together a package of South African wine. People across the UK then buy it, have it delivered at a really good price. We bring in the winemakers of said wines, and we have an online evening with guests from across the UK who are suddenly able to drink South African wine, meet the South African winemakers. In the case of this week's one, Andrea Mullineau is one of them, so proper wine oh, and sample the wine as the winemaker's talking about it, as I'm guiding through or more likely telling Sherwood to shut up because he hasn't stopped talking for the last eight minutes. But give people sitting in Leeds or sitting in Manchester or sitting in Cardiff this uniquely South African experience. And we can do that now in America. And uh, I've done them in the Middle East and done them all over the world. And yeah. a, a year ago, trying to sell the concept, the idea of that would have been quite difficult. But we've become so engaged now with this sort mm. of conversation that as much as people like yourself, and you're certainly not alone, don't really like them. It is the opportunity to do something that previously we weren't able to. And I, I, oh, it's fantastic. It's, the reach that it's allowed us, the reach that it's allowed us is just beyond. And that's what we have to optimize. I mean, we definitely can. So from that perspective, I think the digital aspect is very, very important to the future of our wine industry. Dan, before we go away, what stood out for you the most over the course of the four days? Anything that you took away with you that you need everybody to know about? The opening remarks were made by Francis Ford Coppola, who I think has made a couple of films, but he's best known mm. for owning a winery in Napa Valley. So he had uh, the man who gave us The Godfather talking to us about the world of wine. And it was more, it was kind of like having your, your grandfather just uh, usher you around the fire and have a, a mm. talk to you. And he spoke not so much about wine, but about family and the importance of looking after those closest to you in the time of pandemic. And it was quite a heartwarming way to get things underway. And it also added a touch of proper Hollywood stardust to, to get yes. things going. I love the fact that South Africa got referenced uh, a lot it just it made me feel a little less alone in the broader wine world that if people out there know yes. what we've been through and and uh, and that they are doing their best to, to look out for us get behind us the the data conversation the marketing conversation that digital space how we're embracing it how we're making it work was really good but i think overall it goes back to to the two points uh, that I've uh, already made, uh, the one of which was that there was just so much conversation beyond what you might have anticipated having in a wine conference. And those perspectives from, uh, in some cases, very, very different worlds were so valuable to shaping the understanding of what we want to do in the wine world. And then again, that sense of community, when you've got people from these different wine organizations, wine territories, who are all ultimately trying to sell bottles of wine as everybody else is, but more than happy to say, this is what we're doing. This is what we got right. This is what we got wrong. I hope it helps you. And I hope we all get stronger as a result. And, and that left me feeling as, as 
upbeat as one can be, uh, given the, the challenges that the South African wine industry does face and I fear is going to continue to face for some time. Mm. Dan, as ever, you're just such a complete pleasure. You always end on a high note. You make everybody feel like singing and having a quick glass of Chardonnay. We love you. Thank you so much. I did hear from Mike Ratcliffe that he is doing a big pitch for us to host the International Wine Futures Conference in South Africa next year, sort of COVID permitting, I would imagine, but but that's something for us to look forward to. But as ever, you did a brilliant job. You made everybody laugh. You, like me, you're everybody's sort of um, party trick, and you're a brilliant party trick. So thank you for being our party trick today. Thank you for joining me. I know you've just got off an aeroplane and landed in Cape Town. You're a super, super rock star. Thanks, Dan. Thanks for the time, Carrie. Really appreciate it. Bye.